Good morning, guys. Before I start, expands means a distance to which something expands or is expanded. Genesis 1, 1 through 25. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the other waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening, and then there was morning. That was the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into the place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit, fruitful trees, bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruits in which is their seed, according to their kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and then there was morning. That was the third day. And God said, let there be light in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let, the, and let them be for signs of seasons and for the days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light up upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light for the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give them light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with, swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, with which the waters swarm according to their kinds. And every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the waters and the seas. And let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening, and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, Let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock, and creeping things, and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts on the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to, the, to its kind. And God saw that it was good. How many of you have worked on a family genealogy the last couple of years? Anybody dabbled in that, looked at that? Um, I've noticed that, that genealogical research has become enormously popular in, in recent decades. I did a genealogy project um, as a junior in high school and, and certainly enjoyed it, but I think it's only grown in popularity since then. I think a lot of that's due to the fact that, that what used to require countless hours of study and 
in dusty archives and courthouses, you can now accomplish with a few clicks of the mouse, you know, um, or, or a sample of DNA. And a couple years ago, Time Magazine uh, reported in a, a fascinating article that genealogy has become, quote, the second most popular hobby in the U.S. after gardening. And, more sobering, the second most visited category of websites after pornography. Uh, in the article, author Gregory Rodriguez, he, he credits what he calls the advent of digital technology for the rise of the popularity of, of studying your genealogy and credits this technology for creating an industry that, believe it or not, is actually worth several billion dollars. Uh, but Rodriguez also recognizes that, that the internet, and this is so true and wise, didn't create this seemingly innate human desire to understand our origins. The real reason, he argues, runs deeper. And he's not even claiming to have any faith in God. I don't know if he's a Christian. But listen to what he says. He identifies, quote, a newfound need to locate oneself in uncertain cultural terrain. In other words, he sees a search for personal meaning, a hunger to know our place in the world. That's what he thinks is driving so much of this genealogy. And, and honestly, friends, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. Why do I say that? Because we live in a world that's, that's increasingly fragmented. Increasingly fragmented. Uh, that The social and cultural identities of centuries past have, have been replaced today by what? The autonomy of the individual. The authority of me. You can be whatever you want to be. So we're told. But after a while, that newfound freedom becomes strangely dissatisfying. Because when, when everything is good, nothing feels good. And our pursuit for absolute personal freedom, to, to be and become whatever we desire to be, I think that's left us with an acute sense of loneliness and isolation and despair when we're not trying to numb ourselves with Netflix. We don't, we don't know as a society why we're here. We don't. We, we long for meaning. We, we long for purpose. And becoming whatever we want to be doesn't feel like enough. Especially as we grow older, we, we want to know, am I becoming what I'm supposed to be? Am I becoming what I was meant to be? So, so we, what do we do? We look to our past. We, we look to our ancestry for, for a sense of belonging and place in the world, identity in the universe. And I think that's because there's something deep inside of us, friends, some, something hardwired in the human psyche that hungers, that longs 
to be part of something that's bigger than us. There's something in our hearts and minds if we're honest and slow down long enough and turn the music off long enough and the TV off long enough that hungers and thirst to know that our little story is part of a bigger story. And I don't think you have to wait for a midlife crisis to feel that. You may have never asked those questions. <laughs> you may have asked them your whole life. You may have only asked them recently, but, but regardless, know this, friend. Know this. You won't find the answer you're looking for in your family's history. You won't find it. You, you may find some very cool things. I found some very cool things, but, but best case scenario, you'll simply understand all the biological ties between you and lots of people in your family past who were asking the exact same questions. Seeing how you're connected to other questioners is not an answer to the question. If you want an answer to the question, don't look to your past. Don't look to your ancestry, okay? Look to the word of the living God. Why do I say that? Because it's he who created you. He, he knows you. He sees you in all those moments where you're sitting there, you're lying here, and you're thinking, I don't even know why I'm here. And I'm so tired of just getting up and doing it again and again and again so that she'll be happy with me and that bill gets paid and somehow my parents will think I'm successful. He sees you in those moments. He created you. He knows you far better than you'll ever know yourself, friend. And in the pages of his word, and I would argue, especially in the book of Genesis, God explains with breathtaking simplicity and clarity why the universe exists, why we exist, and what's our point in this whole thing called life. What's our purpose? Genesis is written more than anything else to orient us. It's an orienting book in a very disoriented world. And for that reason, the book of Genesis doesn't start with us. Did you catch that? If, if God is going to orient us, the most important thing he must do is not start with us. He has to start with himself. And so Genesis starts with God. Now, a bit of background is in order, okay? Before we dive into the contents and significance of chapter 1, we need to remember that we're not the first people to whom this book was given. We're not the original recipients of Genesis. Genesis was originally written for the nation of Israel. As part of the Pentateuch. Don't freak out. That's just a big word that means the first five books of the Bible, okay? And most likely, we don't know this for sure, but most likely it was written by Moses uh, while Israel was wandering in the wilderness. So they've left Egypt, the Exodus, and they're wandering in the wilderness waiting to enter the promised land. And that dates the book sometime between 1300, 1500 BC, roughly. 
Although a lot of the events that are described in this whole book, they reach back, obviously, to a much earlier time. Uh, Genesis, you should also know, it divides into two main sections. Two main sections. Uh, first, the, the primeval history, or origin of the world, that's chapters 1 through 11. And then, the, the patriarchal history, or story, of a particular family line. That's chapters 12 through 50. And the transitions within these sections are marked off by a a recurring phrase, repeating phrase. What's that phrase? These are the generations. Whenever you see that in Genesis, as we're reading this book, studying this book, that's that's a marker, that's a literary sign. I know I sound like an English teacher, I won't go on forever. Unlike some English teachers, but it's important to note, okay? That's a marker. That's a sign that we're, we're hitting a turning point. And when Genesis says, these are the generations, that means that it's about to zoom in on a particular person who was mentioned in the previous section. So I'll give you an example. Genesis eleven twenty seven says, these are the generations of Terah. Or this is what became of Terah. What do we read after that? It's the whole story of Terah's son, Abram, and all his descendants. So that's how it's organized. And and Genesis as a whole, it sets the stage for the rest of the Pentateuch, first five books of the Bible. And those five books in turn set the stage for the entire Bible. Guess what that makes Genesis? One of the most important books in the Bible because it's essentially an introduction for the whole Bible. And and I think we tend to think of a book like Genesis as ancient history. It's like like opening the photo album and you're over at grandma's house and have a seat, look at this. It's like, okay, grandma. We, We can think of it as ancient history, but church, it's more than history. It's more than history. It's way more than history. It's history in the service of theology. It's a recount, a telling of what truly happened in the past, that we might know something about who God is in the present. Why do I make a big deal of that? Because I would argue that the primary aim of this entire book, as I've been studying it for over a year now, the entire aim, the primary aim, is to help us understand the nature of our identity as the people of God. That's a big way of saying it's God's answer to who am I? Why am I here? And what's the point of my existence? Genesis is God's answer to those questions. And and it traffics in those questions. Big questions. And to answer them, it tells a story. A true story. It's also our story. It's, It's a story of two things. Of creation and recreation. Now, and I think most people who've heard about Genesis or are familiar with Genesis associate it with creation. You know, the first two chapters, if you've grown up in the church, there's a flannel graph, and look, there's trees, and look, there's a whale, and what's that, kids? It's a whale, and you know, you associate it with creation. But, but that's just the beginning of the story. What, what does chapter three tell us? It tells us that that we destroyed God's good creation. That we brought corruption and, and death into the world by, by rejecting our creator's authority and insisting on our own whims and desires. 
God graciously promises at the end of chapter 3 to to redeem and restore all that we had corrupted through our sin, affirming again and again and again that the power of God to bless is always greater than the power of sin to destroy. You'll see that again and again, church. Isn't that good news? That the power of God to bless is always greater. The power of God to recreate is always greater than the power of sin to destroy. And God proves that in a major way with Genesis 12. Where we see the start of his plan to to bring his promised blessing to pass through the, the line, the family, the genealogy of a man named Abram. And the whole rest of the book unpacks God's promises and God's faithfulness by teaching us two things about Abram, his descendants. First... When they choose to trust and obey the Lord, God blesses them big time. And he blesses everybody around them through them. That's the first thing. And second, even when they fail to trust and obey the Lord and suffer the consequences, you know what ultimately prevails in their life? It's the covenant blessings of God. That's what prevails. That's why I said earlier that the power of God to bless is always greater than the power of sin to destroy. And and that's why I decided to call this series Recreation. Recreation. We're going to be in the book of Genesis. I always tend to underestimate these things, but right now I'm thinking it's going to be a little over a year. All right? So buckle your seatbelts. Why do I call it recreation? Because Genesis isn't just about God's original design. It's about his faithfulness to restore all that our sin has destroyed. That's what it's about in a major way. He's the God who created us in his image, and he's the God who, who recreates his image in us to whatever degree that's been corrupted by sin, broken by sin. And he does that through a second Adam. A second Adam, a descendant of of Abraham, someone in his family tree, his genealogy that God promises in Genesis 3 and they're still waiting for in Genesis 50. What are they waiting for? Well, they're waiting for the person and work of Christ. And it's in Jesus' church that the words Joseph spoke. To his brothers in Genesis 50, in their own fear and terror, become the very words that God speaks to us in the midst of our own sin and suffering. What are those words? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Those words are like a ray of light shooting across over everything that's come before it in Genesis. That's the point. Is for you, you meant evil. We acted wrongly. We rebelled. But God meant it. God used it. God worked it. God redeemed it. God recreated it for good. And that's what I mean when I say that Genesis is, is theological history. It's, it's God's story from start to finish. And and the events that it accurately reports 
are carefully selected to teach you and me to recognize his authority and trust his authority. Now, I'll warn you about something. I'm setting us up here for the whole series. Genesis doesn't answer every question we might want it to answer. Okay? Especially in the first couple chapters. But if we read it for what it is, you know what it does? It answers all the questions we really need it to answer. Questions like, why are we here and what's the purpose of our existence? So so as I said a few minutes ago, it answers those questions by orienting us in a disorienting world. And in order to orient us, it can't start with us. It has to start with God. So look at verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want you to imagine something for a minute. I want you to imagine that you are part of the people of Israel and you're listening as those words are read to you for the first time. You've left Egypt. You're wandering out in the wilderness. You're waiting to enter the promised land, Canaan. Hostile enemies abound. And so do temptations to fear. That's pretty much what happens when hostile enemies abound. (laughs) Temptations to fear abound. Well, what what do we naturally tend to do or feel like doing when we're afraid? What do we do? I'll tell you what I do. I try to control the situation. I try to say, okay, how can I lock this thing down so that I can bring to pass the outcome I want and not the fearful one? That's why worshiping the Canaanite idols was such an attractive alternative to worshiping God, by the way. They offered what appeared to be an easy path to victory and blessing and and fertility. Maybe if we worship their gods, we can enjoy their blessings. Man, that's the temptation, massive temptation staring Israel in the face at this point in their history. So so think about it. What do they need more than anything else in that moment? Well, I would argue it's the exact same thing we need when our own life feels like chaos and we're tempted to trust our resources and our talents and our control and our abilities to make it all good, to bring blessing to pass. We need the same thing they did in the midst of that chaos. We need the word of God. That's what we need. We need the word of God to remind us that there's only one God, and it's not you and me. There's only one in control, and it's not us. It's the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That's what Israel needed in their fear. That's what we need in our own chaos, friends. In our disoriented world, we need to hear again that there is one God and he is sovereign over all things and he is the almighty creator of heaven and earth. We need that desperately if we're going to be oriented. And this creative work of God establishes his authority and it demands our trust. I want you to keep that in mind as we work throughout Genesis. This is not something to contemplate from afar. 
like every other part of the word of God, we, we don't come to Genesis and say, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. He said something I've never heard before. Maybe you will, maybe you won't. <laughs> but we come to the word of God to submit ourselves to its authority and to respond to the claim it makes on our life. It makes a claim on you. And Genesis, by establishing and asserting the universal authority and supremacy of God, here's the claim that it makes. It demands our trust. It demands our trust. It compels our trust. And I think the first chapter does that, especially these first 25 verses, in two ways. Okay, How does the creative work of God establish his authority and demand our trust? Two ways. Two points I'm going to make this morning. First, Creation reveals the supremacy of God. And second, creation reveals the power of God. I told Eliza, my wife, last night that it is a cruel, cruel joke to ask a preacher to take 45 minutes to preach the first 25 verses of the Bible. And it's not a cruel joke because you run out of things to say. To the contrary, there is so much in here about who God is and what he's like that, that orients us. But, but I think it can be organized under these two headings, okay? So first, creation reveals the supremacy of God. Let's think about this. Look, look, look back at verse 1. We don't want to move too quickly here. This first verse is both a summary of the whole passage and the very first event in the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So, so think about what that means. Think about that. Okay, that means that this physical world is not all that there is and all that exists. God exists. And there are not multiple gods or, or a posse of rival deities. There is one God, and he is the creator of all things. That means God is not a philosophical construct. He's, he's not a spiritual notion. He, he's not a name for all we do not know and understand. He's a person who acts. Nor is this person, hear this, this person is not one with the material universe, the sum of the material universe, or a spiritual energy emanating out of this material universe. Why do we know it's, he's, he's not God, any of those things? Why not? Because he created the material universe. Therefore, God is not a creature of our will or our imagination. We are creatures of his will and his imagination. It's really important. And the fact that, that he created, what does it say? In the beginning or at the beginning reminds us that the one who is creating here has no beginning. He existed before the beginning because he has no beginning. That means he's eternal. As God said to Moses in, in Exodus 3.14. Moses, who should I say that you are? What does God say? I am who I am. 
or I will be who I will be. He's eternal. And, and even in saying that, it's like, huh? What? I mean, moderately arrogant, maybe? I mean, I don't even get that. We, we don't have a category for that kind of existence. Because everything in our world, everything that we see in the material universe that we inhabit, it all has a beginning. But friends, all we can see is not all there is. That's the point. God is real. And all, and all that exists, all that you can see, and therefore confirm exists, we, it only exists because God exists. Why? Because he created all of it. Everything in this world, the earth, and everything that's outside of this world, the heavens. It's the whole universe. And so, so the claim in verse 1 is, is both comprehensive and it's exhaustive. Everything that exists, God created. And so what started out, look at verse 2. As, quote, without form and void is, by the end of chapter 1, teeming with both form or structure and substance content. Okay, so, so think about this. During, during days 1 through 3, God creates the forms, the structures, day and night, sky and sea, Land and vegetation. Think of those as containers, if you would. And then during days four through six, God fills each of them with substance, with content. So he fills what? The day and night with sun and moon. The sky and seas with what? Birds and fish. How about the land and vegetation? With, with livestock and creeping things and, and beasts of the earth. So we go from no form, no substance, to glorious form and glorious substance. Now, for all of you who noticed, wait a minute, how can light come into existence on day one prior to the creation of the sun on day four? As a chemistry student, I noticed such things. <laughs> I would simply say this, that is of little significance to the author of Genesis. Why? Because, as I see it, the presence of light before the presence of the sun was a powerful reminder to Israel that God is not dependent on the sun. Okay? He doesn't need anything to give him something so he can do more. He's not dependent on anything. He doesn't need the sun to give him light. He created the light just like he created the sun to tell Israel and us what? I am Lord over all of it. And why is that important? What's well, important because the nations surrounding Israel, starting with Egypt, what did they do? They worshipped the sun. I mean, in their eyes, it, it was divine. There was a sun god, a moon god, a god of the seas, a god of the land. I mean, nearly every false god that Israel was ever tempted to worship was associated in some way with something in the created world. So, God, in Genesis 1, isn't just describing what he did. You know what he's doing? He is doing that, but, he, but he's doing more. He is He's like a military sniper. 
he is picking off all the false gods of all the surrounding nations one by one. He is. And he's a great shot. Okay? So think about this. That sun over there that all those people are worshiping, I made that. Okay, that, that sea creature over there that everyone's afraid of, I made that too. That moon that all those folks are bowing down to and sacrificing animals to, I made that. That the planets and the stars that everybody around you thinks controls their destiny, I made that. The the ability of of the plants of the field of grain and oil and wine, the, the fertility that I've given them, doesn't come from Baal. I made that. I I gave them the ability to reproduce that you would have food. It it all finds its origin in me. And it all testifies to my supremacy. I, I love how Alan Ross simply observes, in short, check this out, everything that the pagans worshiped, God had made. That's decisive. And it was exactly what Israel needed to hear on the cusp of of entering the promised land. Or as Gordon Wenham says, it declares that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was no mere localized or tribal deity, but the sovereign Lord of the whole earth. That's what it says. And, And hear this, friend. It's the simple fact that God is the creator of all things that assures us that he controls all things. And that he reigns over all things. There's nothing in the universe that falls outside the total control and total dominion of God. Why do we know that? More than any other reason, because he made it. He created it. All of it. But he didn't just create it. He named it. Do you notice that? So, So in the ancient Near East, to name something was to demonstrate your authority over something. So, so it's why a, a king that would conquer, like Pharaoh, when he conquered a Judah or Israel, he would rename their kings. Why? Because that's his way of saying, hey, check it out. I own you. You're under my thumb. So, so what is God doing here? Well, he's, he's naming things. He doesn't just create the light. He calls it day. All right? He doesn't just create the atmosphere. He calls it sky. He doesn't just create dry land. He calls it earth. So he creates it. He names it. And it it all points to his supremacy. I was thinking this week about how I've, I've stood speechless in a cloud of mist above Victoria Falls in Africa. Just, I can hear the roar if I'm quiet. You know, I, I have, I've climbed Copper Ridge in Cascades National Park and, and stood out and just looked at like a hundred miles of snow-capped mountains. I've watched the sun paint the Grand Canyon with, with every color of the rainbow. But friend, you can see all those things and millions of people have and, and you can be completely blind to what they really are. 
What are they? What, what are all those things? They're an enduring testimony to the power and glory and supremacy of God. That's what they are. Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the skies proclaim his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. That's why we're all accountable, by the way. Romans 1. We know he's there. We see his his divine power and glory in, in the things that have been made so that we are without excuse. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their their words to the end of the world. God God created this world for a reason, friend. And if you're ever wondering, why is this world here? Wonder no more. Genesis reminds us that the word of God is here that we might learn to stand in awe of God. And those of you who may be thinking or wondering, "Well, well, how do I do that? Like, how is that applying something? I would simply say this, the most important application of any sermon, and arguably the most important application of this sermon, is simply that, that we would stand in awe of God. That's the goal. That's God's goal. It's the only appropriate response. So, we need to ask God to open our eyes to see his creation for what it is. It's it's a showcase for his supremacy. And I would remind you that there's no more important distinction in the Christian worldview than this distinction between the creature and the creator. Why do I say that? I say that because it's the primary thing that sets apart the one true God from all that is not God. God is the only uncreated being in the universe. (laughs) Everything else that exists, he made, he created. And and the God who created all things is infinitely greater than all things. So so what are some of the glorious things in the created world? Cars, houses, technology, and fill in the blank. Whatever you're thinking about, whatever you are with such great excitement saving for right now. You know what that is, that thing? It is a mere reflection of the glory of the creator. That's what that is. So so, so don't worship your car, okay? Don't worship your house. Don't, Don't worship your video games or your phone because they're not God. They never will be God precisely because they were all made by God. Don't don't worship the creature, worship the creator. Because creation, it reveals his supremacy, and there's there's none greater than him. Point number one, creation reveals the supremacy of God. Point number two, creation reveals the power of God. Supremacy of God and the power of God, and these things are related. I hope you heard, as Elmer was reading these verses, that there's a discernible rhythm to Genesis 1. There's a pattern. There's a rhythm. It's like, like a beating drum, okay? And needless to say, this rhythm, this pattern, is not at all like my creative work. 
It's not. Why do I say that? Well, because I have a project over here and a project over there. I, I envision projects. I never start. <laughs> I start projects. I never finish. Best case scenario, the projects I do manage to start will take twice as long as I thought when I started them. If I happen to finish them. And they'll take a serious mental toll on me before they're complete. That's, that's what my creative work is like. Now, I'm not downing work. There, there's joy in work, dignity in work. We're going to see that in a few weeks. But for now, think about this. God did one thing and one thing only to create the heavens and the earth. One thing. He spoke a word. Okay, verse 3. And God said, let there be light. There was light. Verse 6. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. Verse 7. And it was so. Verse 9. And God said, let the waters appear under the heavens, be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. What's the, what, what's the pattern? What, what's the beating drum? God said, it was so. God said, it was so. God said, it was so. God, I mean, it, over, over, over again. It, it's, it's immediate. It's effortless. And it's decisive. When God makes a decree, it happens. Okay? When God speaks a word, it happens. That's the whole point of the narrative. It's a massive testimony to the majestic power of the word of God. I love how Francis Schaeffer describes this contrast between the way we create, what I was talking about, and the way God creates. Listen, the artist reaches over and uses his brush and his pigments. The engineer uses steel and and pre-stressed concrete. I have no idea what that is. For his bridge. Or the flower arranger uses flowers. Now we're in my realm here. The the moss and the rock and the pebbles that were already there. God is quite different. Because he is infinite, he created originally out of nothing. Ex nihilo. There was no mass, no energy particles before he created. Here is power, Schaefer says, beyond all that we can imagine in the human finite realm. He was able to create and shape merely by his spoken word. Do you know that's what Peter in the Gospels got a small taste of? Jesus looked out over a hurricane and said, shut up. And it was gone. Do you know what Peter said? Depart from me, for I'm a sinful. Friends, when we come face to face with the power of the word of God, the, the only appropriate place is on our faces before him. 
It's the only appropriate response. It's not just a, a power beyond all we can imagine. Oh, that's cool. I wonder what's coming out in the next Marvel movie. <laughs> no. It, it humbles us. And then, hear this. It's worthy of our complete trust. It's worthy of our trust. Why do I say that? Well, it's because of what I said earlier. The creative work of God, it establishes his, his authority and it demands our trust. And, and nowhere is that coming to clear focus than in the revealed power of his word. So back to Israel. You're about to enter the promised land. What's the connection? Well, no matter what happens as we cross this Jordan, no matter what the opposition is, no matter how difficult the challenge, this we know, okay? The promises of our creator that he has made to us are absolutely trustworthy. Why do we know that? Many reasons. What's the first one? Because when he speaks, it happens. If he said he will provide, then your provision is guaranteed. If he said, I will protect you, then your protection is guaranteed. If he has said, in Christ, you will be victorious, then your victory is guaranteed. I mean, brothers and sisters, do you, do you realize that the Bible you hold in your hands, it's sitting up here on this pulpit, these are the same words of the God who spoke the universe into existence. I mean, that's... That's why when I walk up here, it's like, good morning, Matthew. You have the privilege of preaching the word of God today. It's like I have the what? <laughs> of the what? I mean, we don't worship this book, okay? I'm not going to bean you over the head if you drive over it with your car by accident. <laughs> but, but there is a reverence for the power of the word that should consume you. Because when God speaks, it happens. It's decisive. I, I love how in verse 16, look there. We simply read, and God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh yeah, and the stars. <laughs> This is say, oh yeah. But, but, but that's the feeling, right? The greater light to rule the day, the sun, the lesser night to rule the night. Oh, I almost forgot. And the stars. How? By speaking. He just spoke. Creation doesn't just reveal the power of God in general. It reveals the power of his word in particular. Hear that, friend. And that means that Genesis 1 isn't a cute story for kids' books and flannel boards. Genesis 1, listen, is a God-given, spirit-inspired, life-giving, heart-transforming summons to faith in the word of God that his promises are true and his warnings are real. That's what it is. And here's what it says. Here's what the word of God says to all of us who wake up functional atheists. Isaiah 55, 10. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not return there but water the earth, 
making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, delayed, postponed, out of budget, over budget, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose. Praise God for that. It shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Friend, do you, be honest, do you struggle to trust the word of God? I struggle to trust the word of God. It's like, Lord, Lord, is it really powerful enough, is your word really powerful enough to change my child's heart? You know, is, is, your, is your word really powerful enough to rebuild that marriage? Is your, is your word sufficiently reliable that instead of hoarding my wealth, I can give away my wealth, confident that when you said that will result in treasures in heaven, you weren't joking me. Well, how do we know that? How do we know that it, it is powerful enough? It is reliable. Well, among other reasons, because when God said, let there be light, there was light. And when God said, let there be stars, there were stars. And when God said, let there be planets and birds and plants and animals, there were planets and plants and birds and animals. He has a spotless track record, friends. He bats a thousand every time God has never said, and it has not happened. He has never promised, and it has not been fulfilled. Why would we doubt a God like that? It's arrogant. And it's just stupid. <laughs> it makes no sense. Sin's irrational. He created the universe by the word of his power. He's right now upholding the universe by the word of his power. And check this out, okay? You're living in God's universe. So you know what that means? Right now, God is upholding you by the word of his power. And that word hasn't become one bit less effective or less decisive than the word he spoke on the day it all began. Because he's the same God. He's the same God. And, and when he makes promises to us, he means it. And he doesn't mean it in the way we so often mean it. We mean it like, well, all things being equal, barring no major interruptions, I'll give it my best shot. No. When God makes a promise, he means it in the sense that it will come to pass. Listen, the very presence of sun and wind and the rain you can see through the windows right now, all of that screams, my word can be trusted. That's the point of creation. You can trust God's word. It reveals his supremacy. It reveals his power. And in so doing it, it demands our trust. Friends, in conclusion, I would simply remind you of this. That the God who created the universe all those ages ago, do you know what he's doing? He's still creating today. Think about that. Creating physical light in the midst of physical darkness, was a miracle. But you know what's an even greater miracle? It's creating spiritual light 
in the midst of spiritual darkness. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Do you know what the glory of God in creation in Genesis 1 does? It's a sneak preview of something. It foreshadows something. It looks forward to something. What what is that something? It is the even greater glory of God in the spiritual recreation and taking a heart like mine and yours that is dead toward God and under the wrath of God and through the power of the Spirit and the gospel of Jesus Christ making us alive to God that we might love him and serve him all our days. That is amazing. That's a miracle. And it's the power of God to create the material universe that reminds us he has plenty of power to transform the spiritual universe as well. And he's promised you, he's promised you that if you're in Christ and he's made you a new creation, that that's a taste, that's a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth that's waiting for you. In so many ways, Genesis is very simple. It's about creation and recreation. And my prayer, church, is as we spend time in this book, that week by week we would sing the song of Revelation 4-5. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they existed and were created. Let's pray.